0: Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Louisa Benson.
1: And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Janet Metcalf, the head of VTI, about researcher careers and open science. So today's episode is PhD students, postdoctoral researchers, and their careers, and how Looking for those careers affects their life.
0: Yeah, I, I think that a lot of, uh, lot of us, well, I still count myself in, so a lot of us out <laughs> there, all of us somehow, I mean, uh, in the academic uh, job markets, uh, whatever that is, um, have the feeling of, like, going mad at some point. Like, am I good enough? Will I ever find a job? And, uh, well, I want to be professor, but only one professor and, like... a sea of PG students, and, yeah, yeah, and people live longer so they don't vacate those professor <laughs> seats, yeah. You can't even get dead man shoes jobs, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I mean, this is this is um, the mental health of PhD students has been quite a topic, uh, yeah. recently.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of articles, a lot of tweets on social media, which is great that it's finally being discussed, yeah, um, because it's certainly. It was only starting to be when I was doing my PhD, and that wasn't so long ago.
0: Mm. I mean, phrases like, you know, publish or perish, uh, Sure. you know, impact factor or die, or, <laughs> you know, uh, doesn't really help. And that's why we also talk about the framework of open science. Um, yeah, exactly. Um,
1: because I think... So I think one of the problems is there are too few jobs, as you just said, for the number of PhD students. But also there's this feeling, and I had this... I felt that I had one overqualified myself, but in a very specific area. So I kind of thought, there's no way I can do anything but be an academic. And I don't think I'm going to be able to be an academic because there's just not enough jobs. Um, And that was a terrifying feeling, Mm. Um, especially when you've given so much to get your PhD and you think, oh, is this actually hurting me? So...
0: Yeah, I think it's also the the problem is that uh, very often while you're doing your PhD or actually already after a PhD when you're doing a postdoc um, that you just don't hear any other options for like employment. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's basically this notion of that if you do science, then it's like your passion. It's not a job. That's that's one thing. That's the thing is problematic. And then, of course, um, well, you have to follow your passion. Sure. Mm. Um and then there's only, well, there's only one way then, right? Mm. So it's from PhD to professor. Yep. Well, it doesn't work, uh, as we just established. Yeah, <laughs> not sure. Any, not everybody, PhD, every PhD can become a professor. Uh, you never hear about other people um, mm. who did successful careers outside of academia, but yeah. still, on you know, because of what they did as a PhDs or postdocs. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think... but I
1: mean, open science, I think, is, the, the, the point is that it can really help because one, opening up, opening and and making, communicating how science is done and the aspects of science more openly peer-to-peer as well as science to the public means that the whole um, experience of doing research is more uh, transparent and therefore people don't feel so isolated. Mm. And the second thing is doing open science, communicating, will give you much more transferable skills which will help you if you decide that becoming a professor is not the path you want to take. It means that you haven't overqualified yourself, but in a very narrow area.
0: Mm. And uh, yeah, before we talk too much about it, I mean, actually we interviewed someone who's really competent <laughs> and super qualified to, yes, to talk yes. about this. Um, it's Janet Metcalf.
1: Yeah, she's the um, head of uh, VTI, which is a UK-based organization, though they have links to Europe. And they basically help um, researchers, PhD students and postdoctoral researchers uh, develop a professional framework um, so help them identify what skills they have and what they need to develop in order to make them more employable and they do fantastic work I recommend you, you know, look at their website and everything and um, listen to what
0: Janet has to say yeah. I love how you say UK based with links <laughs> to Europe already <laughs> so <laughs> separated somehow Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it seeped into your consciousness.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's hear Janet.
2: I'm Janet Metcalf. I'm the head of VTI. And our program is um, designed to support the professional development of researchers. So we want researchers, wherever they're from, um, to make good career choices. And we want to help organizations who employ researchers to have a healthy uh, working environment for researchers where they can flourish. Okay, <laughs> that sounds
0: uh, interesting and very ambitious goal. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, so how do you accomplish this? What, what are your sort of methods, your tools? How do you work with the researchers and the companies or the future employers?
2: Uh, so, uh, we work we work directly with the researchers in terms of getting them to appreciate the competencies that they have as as researchers, because researchers are very good at thinking about their research. They're less good at thinking about how well they are as a researcher. Um, so, unless you have that sort of understanding of yourself and the competencies that you have, it's very hard to think about what can you do as a career. So many researchers make what looks like an obvious choice that they want to be a researcher in academia because they're familiar with that environment. But we all know that there's a bigger supply of researchers who want to become academics than there are academic positions. So one of our aims is very much about helping researchers look to see the opportunities that are open to them. And there's some extraordinary opportunities out in um, in employment sectors beyond academia that they don't appreciate and they don't understand what those employers are looking for. So we work directly with researchers to help them to 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 be more aware of that. And we do it through... Our underpinning framework is the researcher development framework, which is a competency framework that looks at what are the competencies, the knowledge and the attributes that successful researchers demonstrate. So it allows researchers to benchmark themselves against that framework and to look to see where they need to develop and where do they have strengths that they could offer to a wide range of employees.
0: And Janet, can you give me a specific example? I guess now everybody's curious. So, what are the the sort of the metrics of a successful researcher? Can you can you give oh. a specific example? Like, what what is it exactly?
2: What does it look like in terms of this a successful researcher? Well, the academic environment has has gone through a transformation, probably quite quietly. I mean, if you look back fifty years, the way. Uh, Academic academia work then is so different from now. I mean, now they have to be so multifaceted. I mean, you a precondition is having the intellectual abilities to do research. Um, but you also need um you need to understand the complexity of the research environment. So you need to know how the system works, and you need to have the personal effectiveness to survive in what is a very competitive environment. Um, so you need that resilience, that self-awareness, um, that self-confidence. But I think more importantly is that there's an there's much more of an obligation on researchers now to show that their research has value. Mm-hmm so a quarter of our framework is looking at what is the the impact of of that research both in terms of how do you disseminate that through teaching but also through publications through engagement with society Um, so that taps into the open science agenda in terms of how do you engage society in your research through how do you support the learning of others so supervision through nurturing the careers of researchers Um, so I think that part of the quadrant is relatively new in terms of the importance of showing the value of the research.
0: Interesting. I mean, definitely. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Resilience. Yes. Resilience.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> I remember that from when I did a PhD. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean. So you mentioned uh, companies and you mentioned the problem that there are more researchers than there are academic jobs. Um, So I'm assuming that part of what Vita does is to help that transition for researchers from pure academia to um, industry or third sector charities or whatever it may be. Um, And how difficult is that transition to make?
2: So we did some research um, a couple of years ago, which looked at where do postdoctoral researchers go if they don't get academic positions? Because there's been quite a lot of attention on doctoral researchers, um, but less so on the postdoctoral researchers. Um, And one of the things we asked that community that responded to our survey is, what did you find most difficult in making the transition out of academia? And interestingly, what came through there the hardest decision was deciding to look. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what found so difficult because so much of um, this their personal and social identity is tied up with the ambition to become an academic, that acknowledging that maybe you needed to look at alternative careers was actually, you know, psychologically most difficult for them. Um, I think the other... The other part of it is knowing uh, what you want to do and whether you've got the capacity to do it. And again, that comes back to being self-aware in terms of, you know, what are your own values? What do you enjoy doing? And what are the competencies you have to offer to employers? And how do you do that? How do you talk to employers in a language that they'll understand? So what, So,
0: what competencies are employers looking for? I mean, except of the sort of traditional, like I'm thinking life science researchers moving to a life science uh, biotech company, that's kind of still sort of staying the same uh, playing field in a way. Uh, But moving maybe to other types of companies, like outside of your direct field um, of PhD, uh, what competencies would you say are the most important then for this, uh, yeah, getting the job basically?
2: Okay, so we've recently completed a project um, for the Euroaccess, a European project, and we asked employers across Europe, what did they value in highly skilled employees? And this was both companies who were research and development intensive, but also um, more generic companies that were looking for generic employees. Um, And uh, the things that were coming out in terms of what employers were looking for, I mean, they value the problem-solving skills and the research skills that that researchers can bring. Um, They certainly value the subject expertise if they're looking for R&D employees. But they're also looking for people who are um, really good at innovation, good at creativity, self-organisation. Emotional intelligence came high up on the list as well.
0: And how do, you, how do you train emotional intelligence during your PhD? I mean, I'm assuming like this is a set of skills that you can acquire to look for a different job, basically, to be employable. Um, how do you train emotional intelligence?
2: Um, it's not so much about training. I think it's more about self-awareness. So you know, quite a lot of the exercises we do in terms of our training courses is, is, is working in groups. And actually working in groups is really important. But what's so important about that is to know how you work in a group, what are the behaviors you exhibit, and what is the impact of your behaviors on other people. So emotional intelligence is about understanding your relationship with other people. And I think that giving them the opportunity to both work in groups and then reflect on their working and have other people Tell them what they learned about that person working with them. You know, sort of giving them honest feedback in a, in a confidential and safe manner. It's really can be really illuminating for researchers. You know that they've not sat back and thought about you know who. How do I how do I impact on other people?
0: Yeah. I'm really glad to hear all this uh, because i maybe you see it on the screen. Our listeners can, but I'm like nodding <laughs> yes, yes, because it ties so much to all the like principles, aims, and goals of uh, open science, basically. I mean, open science is about, in a way, maybe you can even say, fostering emotional intelligence. Uh, sort of uh,
1: certainly yeah. thinking about your re- your relationship to the wider world as yeah. opposed to
0: simply you and your research in a kind of linear. A B thing exactly and uh, yeah fostering collaborations and uh, thinking outside of the box and really uh, investing time in like uh, really uh, working with with others and not just keeping it for it for oneself and just maximize impact by not sharing and open science is the opposite it's about sharing in all different ways so uh, I'm really glad that you that you're talking about this because it seems like uh, yeah, uh, open science not just about um, making the science better, but actually it's a clear uh, career-promoting uh, activity <laughs> in a way. Uh, if just taking on the individual level, like for the researchers themselves.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, building uh, being collaborative and building networks is so important in the research environment. And so engaging in something like open science, you need to learn how to collaborate with a lot of different people who are maybe at different levels or different levels of understanding um, or different attitudes from what you may have. And I think the challenge of doing that can, can be brought back into your more classical research environment in terms of making you a better researcher.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned resilience, and I mean, there's been a lot of stuff in on Twitter, that I, on the feeds that I follow anyway, about the, the, the mental health of researchers and how isolated they can become. I guess maybe that's slightly better when you're working in a lab and you've got a group, but especially humanities yeah. PhDs, you know, you don't see anyone for weeks at a time. It's terrible. Um, but I guess if you open up your research and you you start interacting on a, on a broader level, that might help with that feeling of isolation. Um, I mean, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Uh,
2: yes, it, I, I'm sure it would. We've just done a project in the UK on the mental health of doctoral researchers. So we looked at what the triggers and the risk factors were, and certainly isolation comes out quite strongly. Um, But another factor that I think also bounces into open science is um, imposter syndrome came through quite strongly. So, you know, there's a feeling that 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 was coming through from talking to the researchers that if they were being stressed, they were finding their PhD stressful, then that that was a judgment on their intellectual ability about whether or not they could do a PhD. So that made them less um confident in being able to talk to their supervisor or their colleagues or the institution about the fact that they were they were they were being stressed so i think one of the things about um taking a more open attitude to research is that you would have you need to develop that self confidence in your own abilities so it could be really helpful in terms of you know the risk of, of suffering from imposter syndrome yeah it, it it's a sort of way into in terms of validating yourself as a researcher by being able to communicate confidently um, with with different people and to build those collaborative networks
0: you know i i hear a lot so we have here uh, at our institute max Delbruck center we have this yearly uh, sort of huge open day it's called the long night of sciences and um it's, uh, we have approximately 200 researchers taking part, of, taking part in it and there are several thousand people coming to really like go into our labs and hear from our researchers what we're doing and there are all kinds of activities around it. It's, it's a fantastic, it's kind of like a science fair. Um, it, it's a fantastic opportunity for the, for the public to, to come and see what we're doing, basically. Um, and since a couple of years um, I'm uh, and I'm talking to researchers to recruit them for this activity. Basically, now they're volunteering um, because they're saying it's really good. I mean, anyways, they feel it's important for the, to show the taxpayer what they're doing. But apart from that, it's really good for their mental health <laughs> because uh, on that day, there are thousands of people coming here and telling them basically, cool, it's really fascinating what you're doing and keep up this fantastic work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, talk to us. Talk to us. Show show us what you're doing. We want to know. This is really fantastic, and uh, you're doing a really good job. And just continue. And like just having people generally interested in what they're doing just gives the researchers like such a yeah mental health boost basically in their confidence that they're actually doing something that has value and impact, which feeds into this uh, this whole issue of uh, yeah not being imposters um, syndrome. Uh, Affected for um, yeah, yeah. all the stuff, so it's uh, it's interesting, and I mean, all public engagement is definitely one part of uh, open science. Uh, but even just talking to the uh, broader peer community outside of, I mean, I know lab work best, so I. But Emma uh, usually say the yeah. same about humanities. but if you just have the contact, if you reach your, if you if you sort of um, widen your. Um, network of people just outside of your lab or just institute, it just feels so much better because you're connected to a more global cause and network and word and uh, get totally new ideas and just new appreciation and respect.
2: Um, um, yes, even within, even within a laboratory setting, it can be very isolating. Yes, definitely. You, yeah. you, can really, you can feel you're struggling and everybody else around you appears to be really successful. Yeah. You know, even though they may all be feeling exactly the same inside, no, you know, you know if, if you're not sharing that with others, so you know, isolation isn't just physical; it's it's also mental, yeah. In terms of, and I I think another thing
1: that was highlighted in another interview we did is the the this fear of failure. So this idea that you you if you're because. Um, negative results don't get the same kudos in terms of publication. It sets up this idea that if you're not getting um, results that show something, um, show a a change or or fulfill your hypothesis, then you're you're a failure and that you you shouldn't be failing. So I think opening up research and publishing different kinds of research and not necessarily these um, complete fulfilled stories can also be helpful for early career researchers who maybe feel that their, their PhD was a waste of time or something because they didn't come up with cancer cure. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Um, yes, it's, um, I mean, people probably have quite un- unrealistic role models in the academic environment. They measure themselves against, you know, highly successful, mature researchers who have, you know, achieved what they want to achieve. Um, but they don't see the journey or the struggles or the failures that they went through along that that trip. So, you know, maybe even having more open conversations about, you know, asking more senior academics about, you know, what were the things that you found difficult when you were at my stage of your career, I think can be really reassuring to researchers.
0: Are you, It's actually super interesting. Uh, are you aware of any uh, project or... Uh book or anything that uh, tackles exactly this, collecting stories of super successful people, but not this kind of like, well, Einstein failed in school, and then he became Einstein anyways, uh, but more just like, you know, day-to-day kind of like non-Einsteins, but still successful people, and how they struggle with all these issue issues that you just described.
2: So in, in all of the queer stories we connect we ask the storytellers to talk about the challenges, what they found difficult and, and what, would, what advice would they give to others? So we, we ask them to be you know, honest about both the, the things that have achieved and the things that they actually found difficult, because I think that's the most useful for another researcher to read, you know, about how to deal with the challenges they may be facing. And uh, we, do, um, we do a programme on academic leadership and particularly for those, you know, postdoctoral researchers who are aspiring to run their own group, and we ask them to go and interview other academic leaders and ask them about the challenges they face as well. So to get get behind the story of their CV, yeah, and everybody only writes positive elements of the CV. What's the story behind getting there? Oh, the more yeah.
0: open CV that should be included. In the oh open yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> definitely open CV, yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I've talked to a few researchers just since I've been here. I mean, I guess because I kind of look like I recently did my, my PhD, so people maybe think I, I, I kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, but, I mean, and, and, you know, I've had a few people say, you know, they're really struggling and they're thinking maybe leaving academia and um, that they, they think, and the saddest thing I have heard was that they, they felt that their entire PhD was a waste of time. And, you know, I was trying to tell them that, you know, it's not, I mean, I'm so far from my my the subject of my PhD, and yet I would never say it was a waste of time. Um, and I think, but I mean, I think having those open conversations and talking about that kind of thing and communicating that is, is just, it's it's really important. And I think aspects of open science that allow you to maybe see things from a different perspective, like citizen science, uh, like public engagement projects um, can, can really open your eyes to, to yeah. the fact that there's not one path and that there's not it's not a zero-sum game, you know. Yes,
2: yeah. so. and yeah, so I think, I mean, a lot of that's around the transferability of the competencies you develop as a researcher into different contexts.
0: Yeah.
2: And, you know, people when they're doing their PhD, they tend to measure their PhD in terms of the research results at the end of it. But actually the most important product from a PhD is the person. So if they reflect back on the person that they were were before they started against the person they were when they came out of it, they'll see it's been a transformational experience for them personally. And I think that's the message that we need to, to embed in in academia that, that not only is the PhD a training of an individual, it's not about the research. The research is just the mechanism by which you train somebody. But the, the, the product of research itself, of the whole research endeavor, is the talented people that come out of it. Because knowledge has got such a short half-life now yeah. that it's the people that are the important output. Yeah.
0: That's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's super encouraging, actually. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's easy to look, lose track of that. Uh, yeah, that makes me feel bad. And uh, both, I mean, both of us would not have been here if we didn't do our PhDs. Oh no, so, absolutely not. So definitely,
2: definitely. Uh, yeah. I can give you a personal example because I, when I did my PhD, within the first year, I decided I wasn't going to become an academic. That I didn't want to do that. Um, but not for one minute do i regret doing the phd because for me you know i'm a different person than than i i would have been i would have been a very different person if i'd not done my phd it was so transformational for me um that i'm i'm glad i spent every minute on that torturous process <laughs> yeah
1: no i mean i'm exactly the same i decided two months before i submitted uh that i wasn't i wasn't going into academia and uh yeah, um, uh, but I, I don't. I don't regret it. I mean, I wish it had been easier, but I don't regret it.
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I dived. You for,
1: enjoyed your PhD. I enjoyed. My PhD. I enjoyed. <laughs> we my don't PhD. like people like you, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> I had a wonderful PhD. I really liked the process. I really, yeah. Sorry. Okay. I had a really wonderful PI. <laughs> Ah. Um, and it was a really good lab and I had nice results. The research question was relevant, so I mean, what's that going to complain about? It was hard work, but I liked working there. So, um, And actually I did dive into research. I mean, I did nine years of postdoc afterwards, three different positions, and I don't regret any moment of it, And but I still did feel a bit like a failure when I realized, like, actually now it's time to move on to something else. Um, mm. And then uh, the first. Well, it was mainly the people around me were like, "Oh, so you didn't didn't make
2: it in uh, research, right?" Yeah. 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 Yes. And uh, and you know, the language is all wrong in terms yeah. of you know academia is now the alternative career. Yeah. Because only a minority, maybe ten percent, will end up having an academic career path. So the majority of, of researchers will will have employment in other sectors and yet it's not they're not valued they're not valued by the academic community and i think that's one of the biggest challenges the project we did with postdocs we 80% of them wanted to be an academic the ones that that left you know they had all wanted to be an academic only 14% of them said that they would go back if they had the choice <laughs> yeah that figures. <laughs> yeah the level of job satisfaction the level of job satisfaction was really high. it was like seventy five percent of them are satisfied yeah. with with their you know their career to date, which i think is you know really healthy information that we need to help our researchers to understand. Definitely. You know, it's definitely it's not an alternative career, it's not a plan b, it's not in case you don't make it. it's a genuinely wholeheartedly rewarding choice. Yeah.
0: Yep, 100%. And actually um, just looking around uh, our institute here, uh, people uh, all kinds of research supporting roles uh, with, without which the research would not happen at all. I mean they're all manned by PhDs from from the field and actually for a good reason because you need these people to, to keep the research engine running basically and, mm-hmm. and People just tend to forget that uh, research is not, it's not just being uh, now in my case uh, in the lab um, It's all this other functions around it, which really uh, make it happen. It's not just uh, yes. bench work. It's so much more yeah. and um,
2: Yeah, I mean looking Working in research policy or in the funders, the, the research charities, there's a wide range of occupations where you're still engaged with research, the research system. Yeah. And, and many of them are still using the knowledge and the research skills that they, you know, they developed during their PhD. It's a, you know, it's, it's never a waste. No, no,
1: no. I think that should be the message. It's yeah. never a waste. And if if you're more than a, a year in, just just finish. Just hold in and finish. That's what I always say, because you might as well at that point. Just just get it done. Get the piece of paper, and then you never have to look at your research. I haven't read my thesis since I finished it. <laughs> Are,
0: Are you, you really on Wednesday? Really? Yeah, it's a Friday <laughs> evening with the class of wine. <laughs> yeah, like people still ask me for protocols for my PhD I thesis, actually. So it's kind of nice. It's still being used somewhere. So. Oh, Okay. I think mine was cited like
2: three times. So. <laughs> but uh, so in, in, in terms of the list that the employers came back with, in terms of what the competencies, yeah. research skills was really high on that list. Um, you know, that they appreciate the way, the way researchers approach uh, problems, that, yeah. that sort of uh, approach to it. What, um, what was interesting is that that wasn't picked out by the researchers at all as something employers were looking for.
0: Okay, what, what did researchers think that uh, employers are looking for?
2: So they were, they had a really good uh, match. Generally, they had a good match. They understood what employers were looking for. But the two things that they missed was the research skills and the emotional intelligence. Okay, interesting. In the top 10, so in the top 10, they didn't pick those up. They did, they did pick, pick up innovation is one of the important things innovative skills but they didn't think as a researcher that they had that no. and I think that's quite interesting because for me you can't be a researcher unless you're innovative but no. it's inherent in the way you do research yeah so this is disconnect I think it's in language between you know thinking that research is different than innovation because innovation has been captured by the the economists in terms of creating, you know, value out of goods and services. Mm. Whereas we have to demonstrate to our researchers that those innovative skills are inherent in the way they do research. And maybe that's something that we could pick up through open science is, you know, getting them to have a better understanding of what what being innovative looks like. Because To make open science work, we're going to have to find innovative ways of doing research. (laughs) Oh, surely, surely. That's a nice uh, ending note. Yeah, I like that. Okay, that's
0: great. Thank you very much, Janet. It was really very nice, very interesting. One
1: thing that really grabbed me about that was that the work that Vita are doing are helping PhD researchers and postdoctoral researchers to realise their potential and to realise that... There are other things they can be doing.
0: Yeah, but you know, uh, PhDs are creative people, or researchers. You know, there is. Um, do you remember a couple of years ago there was this hashtag trending on Twitter, the oh, overly yeah. honest methods. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my that's goodness! Great. I, rec- I recognize every single one of them. I'm <laughs> laughing so hard every time I look it up. Um, there are more of those, right? I mean, it yeah, seems like there's. There's, um, there's at
1: academic chatter, which is um, mm-hmm. kind of. That kind of thing. And then uh, hashtag PhD life, uh, hashtag honest honest PhD, hashtag PhD chat. All of those are kind of the similar kind of thing. And then, of course, there's the wonderful PhD comics. Oh, yeah. Which personally helped me get through my PhD because I literally read them and I went, oh, everybody feels like this. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, So, I mean, social media is a great way um, to connect. I mean, that is one of the benefits of living in kind of the digital age. You know, you can have a conversation with someone across the world who's going through the same problems you are. You are not just limited to your lab, or if you're doing a humanities PhD, your tiny little desk.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there is also, uh, like in terms of open science, I, I quite. Um, it seems to be some kind of uh, uprising of the... PhDs ongoing right now with all this uh, social media um, hashtags and yeah. yeah the PhD comic and yeah so uh, that's it for today. Yep. Tune in for the next episode coming up soon.
1: Yeah. So every Thursday, um, wherever you normally get your podcast from, we'll be there. And uh, thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter at oosp. That's Orion Open Science Podcast. Um, or drop us an email at orion at mdc-berlin.de or for the German
0: listeners orion at mdc-berlin.de The show is brought to you by the EU-funded Orion Open Science Project. The music is written and produced by Fabio de Miguel. Sound mixing is done by Paolo Oliveira. You can get the podcast from wherever you
1: normally get your podcast from and it's available every Thursday. Thank you for listening. Join us next week. Bye. Bye.